You're listening to the Voice of Conservation podcast for the Face of Conservation Project with me, Matt Williams. Today, we'll be speaking to Adam Macon, campaign director for the Dogwood Alliance, a forest protection NGO based in North Carolina in the southeastern USA. So Adam, can you tell me a little bit about what's special to you about the southeastern USA and this area? Um, so I was born and raised in what I refer to as southern Appalachia. Um, and that region is a region that expands really southwestern Virginia, eastern Kentucky and Tennessee, western North Carolina, north Georgia, and the upstate of South Carolina. So this cluster of states that make up the um, southern Appalachian region. And, th- and that's my uh, home. That's where we would say I was born and bred. Um, and uh, it's, it's just the, the mountains here and the nature here is, uh, to me, it's, it's some of the, well, as a fact, it's some of the oldest mountains in the world and some of the oldest rivers in the world. And because of that, the nature here is just very comforting. I think we've, uh, it's, it's very welcoming. It, it wants you to walk barefoot, you know, in, in the mountains and, and feel the dirt and hug the trees. I mean, it, it really, it embraces you. And I think uh, when a lot of, what makes this place special is I think a lot of big majestic natural places like you know the Himalayans or uh, the Rocky Mountains or um, you know glaciers up in they're they're incredibly stunning to view but they're not that accessible to a Mm. common person Uh, you can't just go park your car and walk into the woods and Mm. feel safe and feel comforted and and that this region has that um, it, it has that, that feeling that uh, Mother Nature is like a mother. And that's really, really special and something that I've always connected with about this area. And can you tell us a little bit more about where exactly we're sitting right now? Right now, um, we are in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, Asheville is the largest uh, city in western North Carolina. It's still a small city, but it's the largest uh, city in western North Carolina. Um, we are in, um, again, the southern part of the Appalachian Mountains. Um, Asheville sits in a valley uh, where two mountain ranges of the Appalachians come together. We have the Great Smoky Mountains uh, to our west and the Blue Ridge Mountains, which come down from the north and the east. And they kind of converge, and then there's two rivers, the French Broad and the Swannanoa Rivers, which run through to kind of make this bigger valley in which Asheville sits in. Um, so we're kind of like right right in the middle of uh, the U.S., in the eastern part of the U.S., kind of smack dab in the middle. And I, I in terms of the nature, one thing I, I think that I really, really enjoy about this area is that we experience all four seasons in their uh, entirety. They're... Um, you know, we get snow in the winter, and you can go skiing in the mountains. It's hot in the summer. We get beautiful leaf changes in the fall, and then we get a beautiful spring in which the flowers come up. And each of those seasons spans a couple of months. Uh, so mm-hmm. I think that's really unique in that we get, we're kind of right in the sweet spot where we get every single season uh, and get to experience them in, in their entirety. And, uh, yeah, it's a really special place to live. So was experiencing the nature and the wildlife something that was important to you growing up? Very much so. Uh, I was raised in southeastern Kentucky, uh, right near the Tennessee border. And uh, it's not only for me, but I think just generally the culture of the area. Folks are very connected to the outdoors because they're right there. Uh, we all, you know, many people live in rural environments, and the connection to nature is not one that is 
you have to go buy a bunch of gear, you know, and yeah. a, and a, you have to have these special shoes and special hiking poles and this and that to experience. It's it's something that's an everyday part of your life. You know, you walk out your front door and you're in the woods. You go swimming with your friends in the river. Um, it's it's really just an integral part of the culture mm. and the society down here. And and me personally, I you know I was raised. Um, in the countryside and was outside a lot. I really, um, I kind of, I, some of my first career was uh, guiding, uh, being a river guide and guiding whitewater um, rafting on the Cumberland River uh, and the Big South Fork River in Kentucky and Tennessee. Uh, and that's really where I, I began to kind of develop skills in terms of talking to people about nature while being out in nature. Mm. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've felt over the over the course of the last week or so that we've been visiting this area is, you know, that really big, majestic wildlife like eagles and, you know, vultures and herons and stuff like that is, you know, we've been seeing that stuff from the car and it's right there in your face. You know, it's not hard to get to that stuff. It's, right. it's pretty accessible and it must be, you know, for just for everyday people, it must kind of be all around them and quite obvious that this is an area where there's some pretty special wildlife, right? Right. Yeah, very much so. Um and the, I think the diversity, too, you know, we have, uh, we have not only these kind of, these big keystone species like bears, and um, they've even started to introduce elk uh, back into a lot of the places uh, in, in kind of the, the greater Appalachian region, um, and, then, and then the bird species, but, uh, you know, we have some of the greatest diversity of, of freshwater wetland aquatic species, the salamanders. There's a thing in, in the mountains here in North Carolina called the hellbender, which is one of the largest salamanders in the world. Uh, it can grow up to over a, a foot long, um, and it only exists in pristine wilderness in the mountains. And, you know, things like that folks are, are just connected to. Um, on On the flip side... I think that, you know, we also face in this area a, a number of, of problems, be, and, and we can get into that further, but the point I want to make here is that because I think the nature is so accessible and so such a part of everyday life that sometimes people in the South uh, somewhat take it for granted, or they mm. see it as commonplace, mm. uh, and, and, you know, don't necessarily respect it or appreciate it as somebody who may grow up in a city their entire life and couldn't imagine throwing a piece of trash out the window in a wooded area. Uh, but here it's such a part of that that I think people have lost that connection a little bit and as our world has strived to develop these areas, we've forgotten a lot of what makes us so special. And so where it is so accessible, it has also bred problems in terms of folks standing up for protecting these areas and as well. Right, right. Before we before we dive a little bit deeper into those problems, I just want to ask: when you were when you were taking people out on the river, did you see them kind of regaining that kind of connection, rediscovering it? Yeah, it's um, you know it's 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 really special to see the the emotional, mental, you know, impact that happens. I think when we think about getting outside, people often think of the physical aspects of it, but uh, the healing that's created from, from being outside is, is spectacular. Um, and being outside in a group, I, you know, you could know somebody for five years in a workplace setting and you wouldn't know them as well as spending one weekend in the woods with them. Mm. Uh, that's a real thing. That really happens. And even on a eight-hour river trip or a five-hour river trip, um, the, the bond that's created between people all in one boat, you know, like overcoming these these obstacles and not over overcoming them in a way that we're dominating nature in a way that we're figuring out how to coexist with it. Mm. We're figuring out how to work with the water through the rapids so that, you know, uh, so that it embraces us and guides us actually down the river instead of us. Like, that's the trick. You know, it's not figuring out how to overpower the water. It's figuring out how to work with it. 
And so that kind of like emotional discovery that relates not only to nature but then in our lives and, and together with people is is just incredibly powerful. Yeah, I agree. It sounds a little bit like me learning to kayak a few days ago. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Going yeah. on a very emotional journey. Yeah. Connecting with, you know, learning to go with the water, like you right. say. Uh, right. learning not to try to fight too much against it right, right. Um, just very quickly as well going back to when you said reintroducing elk and that sort of stuff yeah. rewilding is a really big kind of topic of debate in the mm-hmm. UK at the moment and it's seen as potentially a way to like get people very excited again about the natural world but it's quite controversial because it involves lots of potentially really big areas of land like what's your perspective on it? have you heard of rewilding over here is that a term like what's your perspective on it um, it very well could be uh, a, a term over here. I personally am not aware of it. I, you know, my perspective is that we, I, I am, it's a case-by-case basis, but I generally, I would say that I'm, I'm, I'm against introducing species that are not native. Yeah. Uh, I think that's, that has caused us a load of problems in the past, and I know that it's still... Uh, it's still, you know, out there and, and what some people want to do. For example, this isn't an animal, but, you know, we the American chestnut was a majestic tree that existed all across the U.S. It died out because of a pest. Um, and now they're trying to genetically modify a new American chestnut to put back out there and, and billing it as, like, the return of the American chestnut. I'm I'm not for that. I'm not for genetic modification. That it gets back to what we were just talking about about man thinking they can control nature better than nature can control itself. Mm-hmm. And that's something we have to overcome. We can't think that we can manage nature better than nature is in its own way this perfect chaos and the more that we can learn to coexist within that rather than to manage it and dominate it and, and bend it, you know, and introduce these species to take care of this, I, I think we're going to be much better off. And so if it's a native species that's that's been gone for some time, obviously you need to look into what the external, external impacts are going to be from that. But I think I would generally be in, you know, a proponent of introducing a native species back into its native environment um, and letting it and letting it flourish. Yeah. Uh, I know that, and there's been some really amazing uh, case studies from that, especially with like wolves in Yellowstone National Park, and and how they've uh, really enhanced and um, you know benefited the whole entire ecosystem from just introducing the wolves back into the environment, uh, returning it to kind of its natural place, and and that is a role that we can play uh, as as part of our. Our, our debt that we owe to nature right now. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you use that word as well. I, I think a lot about the idea of of debt, of owing owing the natural world something and finding ways to try to repay it. And also there have been obviously generations of ecologists and naturalists who have come before ourselves mm-hmm. who have done so much work to to protect the natural environment, to educate people about it, to learn about it, and they've given us that gift. And if we can do something today by trying to pass that on to future generations, it's kind of a way of of repaying that debt, right? Definitely, definitely. And I I think, you know, you bring up an interesting point there with uh, naturalists and ecologists of past generations and what they did. And, you know, this is a little bit off topic here, but I think it's an interesting point for people who are, you know, I'm 30 years old, so I'm young, I'm in this movement, I've been in it for a while, uh, and sometimes I have different perspectives than an older naturalist. Here's a quick example. Um, you know, uh, uh, you're eating an apple in on a hike, right? From my perspective as an environmentalist, that apple core, I would not throw into the woods, because uh, there's there's these leave no trace principles of you know leave nothing but footprints take nothing but pictures, mm. uh, and if I throw that apple core, the squirrels and the wildlife begin to become reliant on you know food that humans throw off and and but uh, I've talked to some older naturalists who they're like everything composts like send it back to the earth right and and so it's an interesting how 
how the, the practices of being a naturalist change over time. Obviously, population has a lot to do with that. Yeah. Obviously, um, you know, availability and abundance of nature has a lot to do with that. We're in a time now where we face mass species extinction. We face impending threats from climate change. We face, you know, overpopulation issues. And the way that we approach protecting nature has to be a little bit more rigid right now. Um, we have to just say no to certain things or just say no to developing uh, a habitat or an area. Um, and that gets, gets back into the management. But I think that's an important point, too, that is worth another conversation, which is how conservationists and naturalists are diff approach being that um, career or that uh, position differently now than they would have 50 years ago. Yeah, definitely. And that's interesting what you say as well. Like it's, it's all very well and good, and it's great sometimes to have a positive vision and talk about what we can do and ways that we can work with nature, but also sometimes... You simply have to say, you know, in this particular instance, we have to be really hands off. We have right. to we have to let go. Or we have to not touch it because the risks or the activities are, you know, are just too harmful. Right. And that I think that so so I'm taking a slightly off topic. Sorry, and I don't want to take up too much of your time, but um, I think that idea brings us on nicely to talking a little bit more in depth about the forests here mm -hmm. and about maybe about the threats to them and yep. maybe if you can explain a little bit about your work with the Dogwood Alliance and indeed why it's called the Dogwood Alliance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, at Dogwood Alliance, we are a uh, environmental nonprofit that works to protect southern forests. Um, we work from an area from uh, basically Virginia all the way down the coast to Florida and then from the east coast over to Arkansas, east Texas. And that's generally how uh, the Forest Service defines the southern U.S. in terms of uh, forestry. Um, it's an incredibly... Uh, beautiful, diverse uh, forest ecosystems here. Um, we There's been a lot of changes over time, but we still have some of the highest tree species diversity in North America. Uh, but at the same time, we are also one of the world's largest wood baskets. Uh, we contain about 2% of the world's forests here in that region that I defined, uh, but produce somewhere around 25% of the world's wood products. Uh, mainly in pulpwood. Mm. We produce a lot of paper, toilet paper, diapers, uh, things like that come from, come from the south. And uh, so in addition to having these beautiful forests, there's an enormous amount of threats. And, and Dogwood Alliance for the past 20 years has committed itself to uh, protecting and, and really changing the, uh, not only challenging the industrial forestry industry, uh, but also changing the way that the market influences their practices on the ground. Mm. Uh, and that's been, that's been our sole strategy. And for the past while, we've worked uh, targeting the, the large paper companies who exist in the region. To your question on why we're called the Dogwood Alliance, when it was uh, founded in 1996, there was uh, a, a group of people who uh, came together uh, as, just as the paper industry was experiencing this enormous explosion of chip mills. So they were chipping up forests uh, and turning them into either selling those chips, exporting those chips, or uh, turning them into paper. And it's just this massive expansion in the mid-90s that happened. And folks uh, from all across the South got together and formed the Dogwood Alliance. And they, they ended up calling themselves the Dogwood Alliance. The Dogwood tree is a iconic species of tree here in the south in all of the regions, Tennessee, uh, North Carolina, Kentucky, Georgia, you see dogwood trees, uh, but they are, they're, they're a shade species, so they're an understory species. So in a healthy southern forest, uh, you'll often see them along roadways because they're very beautiful. But in, if you go out into a healthy southern hardwood forest, mm. uh, you will find dogwood tree species. And so they're in, an indication of a healthy natural ecosystem. And so when we see dogwoods, we know that that forest um, is, is functioning properly as it should as an ecosystem. And so that's why we're named the Dogwood Alliance. And at this time of year, they've We've seen them along the roadsides, haven't we? They're in beautiful bloom with these little white flowers, right? Yes. Um, yes. So we've been we've been visiting uh, for the past few days these beautiful, stunning bottomland forests, wetland forests as well, which have sort of 
you know, very wetland forest floors, um, yep. really big cypress trees, really big tupelo trees mm-hmm. as well, um, many of which are decades, hundreds of years old. Um, and there are new threats facing these forests today that have started to appear in the last sort of few years, right? And that's that's the reason why I'm here, and that's the that's one of the biggest issues which you're working on at the moment, yeah? Yeah. So in the um, in the past six, seven years, uh, we've seen well-intentioned policies, climate policies in Europe uh, that have have come across their aim being to promote renewable energy, Uh, but that has has caused a rapid expansion of biomass uh, as a form of energy. Europe's are very familiar with biofuels and the problem that that's caused, but this is specifically for electricity and power. Uh, so several uh, energy facilities in Europe are being either, uh, they're co-firing, so they're combining uh, and firing with, or they're transitioning uh, power facilities to burn wood. Um, because wood is considered a renewable form of energy, the governments are supporting renewable energy, we love that, mm-hmm. but... Um, wood on a large scale uh, is creating some problems. And so what we've seen is because of this expansion of the industry driven by a lot of subsidies uh, in Europe and here in the U.S., um, uh, an extreme, an explosion of a market for what's wood pellets. Wood pellets are you would cut down a tree, chop it up, smash it into these small condensed pellets, and then what they're doing is they're shipping them over to Europe and burning them in power stations, calling it renewable energy. That's a big problem because we're not talking about heating your home with, uh, with wood that you chopped down from a tree that you know fell in your backyard. We're talking about powering an entire industrial power facility with wood. And that takes a lot of wood. Where are they getting that wood? They're getting it from uh, a number of places, but uh, in the past couple of years, the U.S. South has become the number one exporter of wood pellets in the world, Mm. much of that heading to the United Kingdom. Uh, In short, that's creating increased clear-cutting in the southern U.S., particularly along these coastal forests and what we've just been exploring, the, the bottomland hardwoods and the wetland forests. Uh, in the south. They're, they're clear-cutting these forests, they're, they're turning them into wood pellets here in facilities in the south, they're putting them on great big barges and ships, shipping them over to Europe, then they go on a train, they get trained to a power facility, and then they're burned. And that has become a huge problem because, as I mentioned before, we already have an enormous wood products industry here. And where that wood products industry over the years has taken steps to increase their sustainability, the last thing we need is more logging mm. uh, and more conversion of our natural forest to pine plantations and, and as the industry would call them, turning them into working forests. Uh, working for who? <laughs> working for their pocketbooks, essentially. Uh, but that, and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing logging and clear-cutting, clear-felling, as you would call it, clear-felling, be incentivized as renewable energy. And at some point, we just have to admit that that's actually moving us backwards, not forwards. And then, to be clear, they're cutting down these beautiful, in a lot of cases, these beautiful, pristine natural forests where all these birds that I've described and the other wildlife live and which are really important. And and in, in the UK, to, you know, one thing that really struck me or surprised me until I started like when I started working on this issue, was when when someone said renewable energy to me, I thought wind turbines, I thought solar panels, but maybe you can actually just very quickly give us an idea of the scale of bioenergy and how important it is for UK and Europe. Yeah, in terms of the whole, from what I understand, in terms of the whole bioenergy umbrella, uh, bioenergy is producing about 60% of the EU's renewable energy, mm-hmm. uh, which was a shock to me in here in Europe or here in the southern U.S. We think of Europe as as a leader in climate, you know, renewable energy. We environmentalists here in the U.S. always are pointing to Europe. But to hear that 60 percent of it is coming from 
you know, nature essentially is coming from the, you know, biomass, bioenergy uh, was a shock. Now, much of that is, is biofuels, uh, but, a, you know, a growing percentage of that is, is biomass. And so uh, what, what I like to say is that when we're creating these policies, we have to remember that energy companies, utilities, they, they really, really like to burn stuff right? That's, that's really what they do. They like to burn stuff. Yeah. And if we tell them we can't burn coal, which is a very good thing, we should definitely not be burning coal, then they're going to want to find something else to burn, uh, whether it be natural gas from fracking or trees from the southern U.S. And currently under the policy, they can burn trees and they can call it renewable energy. Yeah. And uh, that, yeah, that, that's, that's what's being created and and I, just to comment really quickly on that they're focusing on these hardwoods, uh, we've seen a real transition over the last couple of years in the paper industry here in the southern U.S. and they're the main driver of of logging in in the south and high quality paper the you know that you would write on. Obviously, the demand has decreased over the time. Computers, internet, things mm-hmm. like that, email. Um, but what has increased is for the fluff pulp, for the for the diapers and the disposable napkins and whatnot. They get that wood from pines. So the paper industry has mainly switched over to pine trees and kind of locked in what they've needed, their feedstocks. Now when you add these pellet companies, they're coming in and providing a market for the hardwoods. Uh, and if there was no market, then... These hardwood trees in these areas along the coastal would be left standing, and landowners could find creative new ways to keep them uh, standing. That would incentivize us to create policies in which we keep these forests standing. But instead, we're incentivizing cutting them down. And the trees that they're cutting down and the forests that they're cutting down, when we talk about the benefits that nature provides us, this, this could be the poster child, as we would say, or the iconic forest type for benefits Um, with climate change. These are coastal forests. We're going to have increased storms, hurricanes. These are our flood protection barrier for the communities. When a storm surge comes, the forests suck up that water in these wetlands. Uh, If they're not there or if they're turned into a monoculture pine plantation, that doesn't happen. We experience extreme flooding. They purify water, drinking water for millions and millions of Americans. They provide this critical habitat uh, for these species, a huge variety of diverse species. And um, speaking of, of, of climate change, these are the some of the most carbon-rich forests, not right. only because of the age and the size of the trees, but also because of the, the carbon in the ground and the soil. Uh, you saw when these trees die... They kind of fall into the water and just sink down and suck down. Um, it's almost like that carbon. It's like carbon storage, carbon capture and storage. You know, it's 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 a natural form yeah. of that. It sinks down into these very wet, moist soils and contains the wood um, in the soil. Not much of it goes in, up into the atmosphere after a tree dies. And so, when you log that, when it dries up, uh, you you are you are destroying our best defense against climate change uh, in an effort to stop climate change, which is completely backwards. Right, right. The, the only place where I've seen forests like the ones here is in Indonesia, where it's a similar situation. All the, all the leaves, all the trees which fall over naturally, they just sit there and they just rot away into the very wet soil and they take all the carbon down with them. And without getting too technical about it, to be clear, for the UK and for Europe, when we burn these trees in our power stations, when we burn these wood pellets, that's not helping to reduce our emissions because they're so full of carbon that in a lot of cases, we're putting tons of it up into the atmosphere. So it's being branded as renewable energy, but actually it's potentially not helping very much or it's even making things worse. Yeah, one of the most, um, you know, and, and one thing that comes up here and why trees are seen as renewable is because you know, occasionally, and it's not—it's worth noting—it's not required here in the in the southern U.S. after you cut down a forest to replant, uh, but but they do replant occasionally. And I think when we saw uh, this this 
hardwood forest that had been cleared. And you see these stumps 60, 70 meters wide of huge trees. And then right next to it, these rows of tiny little pine trees that are about, you know, 20 centimeters tall. And, you know, you think that is, that's not, I mean, it's, it's, it's taking away your, you know, your, your fine things, your, your, I'm trying to think of a good example, like your, you know, your aged high dollar fine whiskey and replacing it with, you know, some crappy swill or (laughs) I don't know how to describe it, but I mean, it's, it's trying to say they're the same and trying to say that they're the same. It's not the same. And it's, it's, I like to think we, we think trees grow back. Yes. But what happens to those bald eagles and those blue herrings when their homes are destroyed? Right. Where do they go? Yeah. Do they just check out for 60 years, 70 years and wait? No, they have to go somewhere else. I mean, if, if somebody tore down your home and then said, don't worry, one will grow back in five or six decades, what are you going to do for that time being? And so the impacts that are felt from it is a, are immediate. And replanting is a good thing. They should be doing that. And it's an aspect of sustainability, but in no way is it, um, is it a, uh, does it replace what has been taken away. You cannot replace that uh, in, in any relevant time frame. And it's not just chipping away, or chipping away is probably a little bit too, too much of an understatement, but it's not just getting rid of homes for wildlife and carbon either. It must be taking away what some of the history and the culture of the area for the communities is based on, right? Exactly. I mean, when you saw it when we were out on the river, I mean, there there are people along the banks fishing. There's, uh, you know, families, dads with sons out in boats enjoying the, the river um, and in, enjoying the natural environment. I mean, that is a part of their culture. Uh, and, and when you're taking that away from people, um, you're, you're taking away their, their identity. Uh, and, you know, we, we think about this a lot. I, there was a quote that I saw when uh, somebody was talking about uh, bioenergy. We, we, for, we forget about culture often in our, de- in our developed countries. And I, I use that term hesitantly because there's different levels of that. But that, you know, uh, with, for lack of a better word, developed countries. And so like the southern U.S., um, you know, when when we cut down a forest here, we call it sustainable forestry or progress. And when it, you know, when a forest is cut down in Indonesia, it's called deforestation. Yeah. And and we get up in arms about the as we should, as we should, we get up in arms about the impacts on the local culture there. But we forget about the local cultures right in our own country, um, and we forget about the impacts to the local people right there. We've heard multiple times in that. Folks in these very rural areas say, we want economic development, but this is not the type of economic development that we need. And for generations now, through the industrial logging industry, through the coal industry in the southern Appalachians, we've seen the natural resources degraded, stripped away from the local communities, the profits from that exported and being sold only on a few jobs that benef- that don't really benefit people in, in the short term. And and we see industry coming in and profiting um, from from the natural resources that should belong to the community. Yeah, yeah. Um, so moving on slightly, I wanted to ask, what are the things that you guys have been doing to try and stop this from happening? Yeah, so uh, first I'll say that the, the movement... Uh, the international movement of organizations and individuals across the world to challenge bioenergy is is here. It's growing. It's exciting. This is the. I mean, if you want to be on the forefront of environmental issues and and taking on an issue that not only is is important, is urgent, but also something that we can stop before it gets completely out of control. Mm. It's bad now, but if we don't do something about it now, we're going to be fighting this for decades. And we have a moment right now in 2016 and 2017 to shape the way that this industry is going. Because utilities like to burn stuff. 
But if we don't allow them to burn our forests, to burn our, our food for energy, then they are going to be forced to make that transition, which is inevitable, but make the transition to clean renewable energy now, right when we need it. But if we don't take action on this now, it's going to be decades before that transition fully takes place. And we're going to be playing catch up, which we've done on so many environmental issues. So I think this is an incredibly exciting issue and something that people should educate themselves on, become more aware. Um, and the International Coalition of Organizations uh, in the UK, in Europe, and in the US are, are doing amazing work. There's plenty of ways to get involved. Dogwood's role within that specifically, the Dogwood Alliance, um, we are we see ourselves as as the really on the ground voice for southern forests uh, we are working directly with the communities uh, who are impacted what we term as frontline communities mm -hmm. or what the term is we we didn't come up with that but the term is frontline communities mm -hmm. uh, who are fighting these pellet facilities on a daily basis we support those communities in um, transitioning away and, and working to develop a new economy. We also uh, investigate and detail the, the practices of the industry. Uh, because this is being driven by policy in Europe, there's a big disconnect, uh, an, in fact an ocean in between uh, what's being said over there and then what's actually happening on the ground here. So it's our job to tell that story and tell that story effectively and communicate what's actually happening here in the U.S. South. Uh, so, you know, our, our strategy um, is essentially to shift the policies and is to tell that story and uh, in order to shift the policies in Europe that are driving this and then build a movement here in the U.S. South to change the way that bioenergy is viewed. Uh, as a renewable form of energy and um, shift the way of this culture of industrial forestry that is that has prevailed here for so long and su support those communities who are actively in that fight. Right, right. Can you just give a couple of examples of who some of the people or groups who have been your best allies working on this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've worked very closely um, here in the southern U.S. with the Southern Environmental Law Center mm -hmm. and with the Natural Resources Defense Council, mm -hmm. um, are two of our, uh, our main partners, uh, particularly on the international side. Uh, there's also several groups who become more involved as the U.S. government has begun to look at the potential of bioenergy uh, to meet their renewable targets under the um, Clean Power Plan from President Obama. Uh, so more and more groups here in the U.S. have, have begun to, to be involved. Internationally, um, we're working very closely in the U.K. with the RSPB, um, with Biofuel Watch, and uh, with Friends of the Earth have been, have been really our, our main contacts there. And then as well on the EU side with uh, the European Environmental Bureau, BirdLife International, and FERN uh, have, been, have been a real core group of, of, of us who've been coordinating and working together, working together on this. Um, but I, you know, it's, it's growing more and more. And then uh, in, we work, uh, in with the with the on a more local aspect yeah. here, uh, the uh, you know the the local communities uh, who are fighting these. There's there's lots of little citizens for a safe environment in in Sampson County and Duplin County, North Carolina. Uh, there's uh, uh, organizing happening down in Baton Rouge. Um, we have uh, activists in Savannah, Georgia in the panhandle of North Florida um, and, uh, and all across the state of North Carolina, the local Sierra clubs have been incredible working on this issue as well as the uh, Riverkeeper organizations who are uh, folks that um, protect clean water and work for the health of the rivers which are incredibly impacted by this industry. So there's a whole coalition of people. We have a, a platform uh, which is signed on by over a hundred uh, groups from around the U.S. and uh, a growing number of citizens who are actively pushing back against the growth of this industry. And we had the really amazing opportunity to meet with some of the some of the local community activists in Duplin County, right near a new wood pellet facility just outside Faison, which is just over the border in Sampson County. And 
these people who are just, you know, wouldn't necessarily naturally strike you as environmentalists, but have just self-organized and really started to work passionately and with all their energy on this issue. Yeah. And, and I think that's a key point because, you know, oftentimes as a greater conservation movement, um, people that work on that issue every day forget the fact that the, the folks on the front lines, the communities on the front lines, they already know what the problems are. Mm. They know and they also know what the solutions are. Uh, we think that we often will have the answer and we sit in our desks in some city in New York and London and we think about what needs to happen down there in the rural places and uh, we forget that, that the folks are, and they might not come across, they don't wear binoculars around their neck and, you know, go hiking all the time and have a blog about their amazing, you know, adventures, which there's nothing wrong with that, but these are folks who, you know, they own Timberland or they, they're, they're a leader in their local church community, and um, they recognize the, the community-level impacts that are happening because of large industry coming in. And I think it's ever, ever important that we support those folks, that we learn from them, that we listen to what they have to say, and when our conservation movement from a broader view can begin to learn from, not just tell uh, local people what to do mm. with their resources, we will find that balance and that harmony and our, our power will increase exponentially um, if we start approaching it like that. And is that one of the things that, what, what, what's the thing that motivates you to keep going? Because some of the stuff that we've seen over the past few days is pretty it's pretty striking, these huge areas of natural forests just completely cut down. And on one side of the road, you've got forests still standing, and then literally right on the other side of the road opposite, you've got, you've got what was a natural forest. So what is it for you that personally keeps you, keeps you going on this issue? That, for me, that's a really big question because I, I feel like it, it changes um, all the time. Sometimes when I see a, a huge clear-cut forest, I realize that, you know, we, I, we, speaking personally, like, I have to do this. Like, I have to work to protect this because if, if, if we don't, like, things are going to get screwed. I mean, we are going to screw everything up. I mean, it's... If we don't work to at least shift the paradigms even slightly, like we're, you know, the powers that be don't realize what's really happening. And, we, you know, I, I do it for the forest, but also I got into this work because I, I've always said that I've never been a specific issue-based organizer. Like mm -hmm. some people love the oceans and they just love the ocean and they want to work to protect the ocean. Some people love the forest and they want to work to protect the forest or love a river and they want... For me, it's not that It's not that one thing. It's not that one species. It's not that one ecosystem. It's I love helping people do something about what they care about. You know, I love going into a place and people know what's wrong. They have a concern, but it's hard to know exactly what to do. Um, or it's hard, they know what to do, but it's hard to put that into action. Or it's hard to, to have that voice when um, nobody's listening to you. And to be able to be that, uh, that support system, to be able to, to have the skills to help tell those stories, um, to, to work with the people who provide me so much inspiration it's it's really it still comes back to me despite the fact that it's about nature it comes back to the people um it comes back to the people who interact with it because they're the ones that are they're the ones that are gonna gonna change this change what's currently happening um and to be able to work with those folks i i just feel really blessed every day to have that opportunity um and i like getting outside and uh it's good <laughs> That's very true. And that's that's really true as well that very often community is is the bedrock for making for making the change that needs to happen happen, right? And right. that needs people like you to bring 
to bring people together. Sometimes they self-organize, but when they self-organize, they need some guidance, they need some help, they need some support. And sometimes, you know, people like you're involved in catalyzing that organizing in the first place. Yeah, it's storytelling. Yeah. It's storytelling. It's effective storytelling. That is campaigning. Yeah. Is effective storytelling. And, uh, you know, the story that we're writing now is is so i mean will will impact generations yeah uh and you never know who the main characters in that story are going to be uh you never know who's going to who's going to be remembered or who's going to you know have a key role or um who's going to be that protagonist you know who's what the characters in the story are and and that is so inspiring um to to be able to to just tell those stories, and, and that's what we're doing. Um, let me just look at my notes. What else did I want to ask? I think I think just a couple of questions to finish, really. What, I think I might know what the answer to this is. What What is the one thing that you would say needs to change to stop this problem? Um, you do know the answer to it? Maybe you tell me. <laughs> um... What's the one thing that needs to change? Well, I like what I like what you said a few times, which is about let's keep it broad, let's keep it simple, yeah. let's just say stop burning stuff. Right. I think yeah. that nicely encapsulates it. But maybe you feel that there's something. Yeah. Something no. I mean, um, I think I think that's important. I think you know that's that is a that is a big you know energy kind of issue in that. We have to we have to put out there that at some point we're just going to have to stop burning stuff. There's we have too many people on the planet that need you know, and even in some in some ways like you know we we our energy consumption is is growing, and um, we have to address that problem, and our resources are depleting. You know, we're we're needing more energy. Well, it's debatable if we need it or not, but we're consuming more energy and the resources that are providing that are going down. Mm. And the reason that they're going down is because we're burning them. We're incinerating them. And when we do, their physical form disappears. And the waste goes into the atmosphere in pollutants and chemicals and carbon. And we just need to stop burning things and i understand that that's a that's a that's a pie in the sky that's a vision but we have to paint that vision for the future we have to paint this vision for the future in which we are, we are not incinerating um our resources anymore which is i think such an interesting time period because if we look at this from a very uh human perspective um you know we were, you know, when when humans started first, fire was what like allowed us to grow and expand. Like fire was the, fire was the, you know, the the impetus, the 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 cause, the the reason that we were we grew and that things and tools were made, led to agriculture and this and that. And um, we're at a point in human history where. Fire is not such a good thing anymore, and I know that's controversial to say, but it's it's necessary, and it's it's this incredibly powerful time in which we're going into a new direction. We have to go into a new direction. We are, our hand is forced to go into a new direction. Now, I, having said that, I will still enjoy a campfire when I <laughs> when I when I go out into the woods. But uh, on a grand scale, we really just have to stop burning things, and we have to stop. Um, you know, subsidizing incineration. Uh, it's just got to stop at a certain point. It's just got to stop. And we have to put that vision out there. We have to put that vision out there. To, I'm not an anthropologist. This is probably scientifically completely wrong. But to extend your metaphor, you know, it might be sad, but we have to kind of wave goodbye to our Neanderthal ancestor who who did that stuff, right? And we right. have to march forward onto onto something else we're in a different time yeah. we're in a new age i mean we if if we want to maintain not not only life but in a more realistic sense like you know the quality of life that we have where where people have you know 
where people have a livelihood and vacations and you know go to a grocery store and get their food and go out to dinner with their friends and fly to a family reunion I mean if if we want to maintain that level which is probably you know from my sense as an American probably a little egocentric because I recognize that the vast majority of the world doesn't actually maintain that level but if we want to find some balance of quality of life is is what I'm saying you know mm. as a human race we have to start to transition to how we interact with the world and how we generate the ability to create that life um, and it can't be through the same archaic methods um, that we've been using for centuries it just can't and at some point we're gonna have to you know that's why we urge policymakers to be visionaries. People remember visionaries. They don't remember the people that kept the status quo. I think, I think that's everything that I wanted to ask. Is there, is there a message that you would have for people in the UK listening to this who might be conservationists but might never have heard about this issue before or might not even be that into nature? And is there anything else that I haven't asked that you just want to share? Is there anything left that we haven't covered? Um... I I would just say that we are more than ever we are connected whether we like it or not the we are a global society um, and actions have impacts globally so once somebody begins to fully understand that, um, I think that the opportunities to address problems and make the world, you know, the opportunities to quote unquote make the world a better place are abundant. That if people feel like there's nothing that they can do about it, that's wrong. There is a lot that you can be doing. Um, there are not only organizations that you can get involved in, but you can talk to people. You can spread the message. You can have these hard conversations. Um, pick up that telephone and, and call somebody and, and find what you agree on and, and agree on that. And just putting that out into our world makes an incredible difference. Um, we're not all going to, you know, go to the Amazon or to the southern U.S. and, you know, hold, lock arm in arm to stop a picket line. You know, not, we're not all going to do that. But by, you know, changing the consciousness of our society, understanding that you are special, you are powerful, you can make a difference, just having that internally and embracing it in yourself, it's going to change this. And uh, we're, we're, you know, I still believe with, you know, I'm an optimist, we're going to win. We're going to win. We can't not um, win. And it's, it's just, uh, it's just how much, how much we can protect and save um, while we're, while we're in this challenge. Cool. I think that's a really nice point to finish. Great. Thanks very much. Thanks, Matt. Was that good? That was great. Good. Excellent.